Just a quick warning, today's episode is explicit. It is of a sexual nature, and there is some language that may not be appropriate for individuals under the age of 18 years old. Discretion is advised. Hey, one more thing before you go. Did you know that our relationship to pleasure is directly proportional to our well-being? And by expanding our window of tolerance for pleasure, we can expand our capacity for just about every aspect of our lives. I'm your host, Michael Hirsch, and this is The Thing About Our Relationship with Pleasure. My guest today is Nisha Fair, a Toronto-based embodiment researcher and coach with a background in movement education and contemplative practice. She specializes in pleasure work for 14 years and She's an MA candidate at York University in Toronto. And she believes that our relationship to pleasure is at the root of what ails us. And by expanding our window of tolerance for pleasure, we can expand our capacity for healthy love, professional success, and overall well-being. Welcome to the show, Nisha. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. It's a very interesting name. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Yes. About my name or just all about me in general? <laughs> well, how about both? Sure. Um, well, uh, so my name, as it's spelled currently, means night. Uh, it has lines back to both Indian and Northern European heritage, but I'm actually Irish. And I was born with uh, a different spelling of my name, a spelling that was not easily pronounced by North American <clears throat> tongues. And so um, I changed it in order to feel more comfortable in the world. People often, you know, I think that changing your name is a very interesting process if you ever go through it, even if, you know, as women who change their last names when they get married, so closely tied to our identity. And um, when I started thinking about it, there were a lot of people who said, you know, oh, but your name is so beautiful. And you know, forget those people who can't say it. And I, I think, you know, having lived with it for as long as I did, you can take that, that approach or that viewpoint. But the other side of it is that spelling of the name and the reality of our linguistics here in North America was creating a great deal of dissonance for me personally and uh, preventing me from so the spelling of the name, I'll spell it for you, is N-A-O-I-S-E. Was wow. Nisha. Nisha. Yeah. It's almost like it's almost like Sersha. Yes. So and so had she been around when I was growing up, I would have been able to say like Sersha. Exactly. You know? Sersha with an R. She's, she's much <laughs> younger than me. And so uh, so the process of going through that name change was actually really um, was quite liberating, actually. And uh, it was something that I'd wanted to do since I was a very little girl. I'd always written out my name the way I wanted it to be spelled. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I headed into academics and writing was because I, uh, I knew that it was common for people to take a pen name. I, I, that's outstanding. Actually. Mm. I, um, we have a few things in common. I have an Irish mm. background. Okay. I'm Irish, I'm English, I'm French, and I'm uh, Spanish. Oh, wow. I'm Spain. Um, so I'm familiar with that. My mm. Irish ancestry goes back to, on my father's side, all the way back to three, three generations, three generations, two generations, and then my grandmother's side, two generations and back. Oh, wow. So got a lot of Irish in me. Yes. But my name is spelled very simple. Yeah. Michael is easy. Yeah. My grandfather's name was Michael. I'm first generation Canadian. So I, uh, they always say that the first generation is more Irish than the people who arrived <laughs> because they're trying to kind of cling to their heritage a little bit more than, than they would have had they, you know, stayed on the, in the old sod. Oh, yeah, so, exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, you grew up in Canada. I did in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. So, um, I was, a. uh, uh you know, immigrant kid, I had a lot of um, expectations placed upon me and my family were Catholic and very, how can I say this in a way that captures it? So let me tell you a story. When I was about 10, we used to go to church every Sunday, you know, with parents and I was about 10 and, or 12 and my father was going around introducing his brood to a new friend and he kind of 
off the cuff made this remark, oh, this is Nisha. She's our little nonconformist. And it was the first time in my life and one of the only times since that I actually felt seen by my family <laughs> because wow. they're very, they were very, very, um, uh, they weren't conservative. They were, you know, progressively minded, you know, politically, but they were very by the book and all about the church and not very emotionally available. Um, you know, there was a lot of turbulence, um, you could say in my family household, it was quite abusive and toxic. Um, so, uh, I grew up and this completely steered me down the road that I'm in now. I grew up with a chronically, uh, dysregulated nervous system as a result of, of what I experienced growing up. And, um, you know, my path to where I am now has really been all about learning how to inhabit my body with the most comfort possible. And so that's really what I teach people to do now is how to inhabit their bodies, not just with comfort, but with uh, an entire range of comfort. So filling in all of the various different nuances and gaps of what comfort and pleasure can mean. Um, because I find in our culture, North American and Western period, um, there's sort of this association with pleasure being solely sexual. That if you're in a state of pleasure or enjoyment, it's sexual and it's ecstatic and that's it. And every other thing you might experience in your life is just the, you know, the ho-hum frustrations that we go through, the mundane which and many people are suffering or you know struggling having to make ends meet and they're actually chronically activated. So um and those that I see a lot of folks like that in my practice. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that I'm gonna learn more about all of that actually. <laughs> I think that uh, the I grew up I grew up in a very toxic relationship myself uh, with my parents. Both of them were alcoholics. And I lost my father at an early age. He was only 39 when he passed. Oh, wow. So it was very toxic for a long time. And I think a lot of us are defined by our our childhood. Mm-hmm. And depending on which direction you go, uh, my childhood defined my pathway into being in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. It also defined my pathway into not uh, drinking and, and understanding how that, how that works. But I had the bonus of learning from my sister was married to an Italian from Rome, the first, um, her first marriage. And uh, he taught me basically what you're talking about. You can have more pleasure in life, in a glass of wine, in how you eat, in what you see around you, and what you can experience around you. So I hope that all plays into what we're going to talk about today. Completely. And I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, you know, I think to your point of asking, where did you grow up? It makes such a difference in, in how, how we grew up. And it's true that our first developmental years, it, it really defines who and how we become. Um, and, you know, you have to look at the history of, of North America and all of its puritanical beginnings are in stark contrast to Central Europeans who live to, um, to dance and drink and socialize and enjoy the pleasures of, you know, being on the ocean and, and uh, looking at the sea. So there's, um, we didn't get that in North America. We didn't get that, that memo. We didn't make it across the water. So um, I think a lot of us now are really um, feeling quite called to living a life with more pleasure, not just as being something that we experience in the bedroom, but something we experience from the moment we wake up, if possible. I'm looking for those moments. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me it's fun. I will have to tell you a story near oh, the end. Yes, please. I love stories. About, about my daughter in Italy. Okay. So you work, you live and you work in a very unique environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you called it an unceded territory. Can you... Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I'm just going to pull that up right now. Um, so in my bio, uh, I've said Nisha is an MA candidate at York University, living and working on the unceded territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And so um, this is uh, what we call a, a land acknowledgement. So I'm not sure if you guys do this in the States, but it's something that 
we uh, we do in Canada um, to acknowledge the fact that we are living on land that is not ours. And not everybody does it, but um, they don't do that. They don't do it. No, <laughs> I, I wish yeah. they would. It's it's really. I mean, I mean, I wish they would too, <laughs> and I hope it's something that you know drips down across the border it would be it would be really lovely to see um it's i think it's just really important to acknowledge that because i mean like all all countries that were built on the theft of the land of uh of indigenous people um it's important to acknowledge how we got to where we are and that we're now benefiting from something that um was really terror it was a terrorist act I agree with so, that. Uh, my wife and I both agree with that. My family mm-hmm. agrees with that. We we feel that uh, we always give. We are grateful for what we have, and we have respect for the people and our the indigenous people, the Native Americans here who were here before mm-hmm. us. Um, as we were talking about prior to us starting this interview, um, I have a respect for them. And I live in Arizona, and there uh, there's a lot of Native American land down here, and a lot of um, a lot of Indian people that are different tribes, and um, so they're very active and they're very, um, I won't say apparent, but they're they're very active in the community to let people understand exactly where, what we sit on and where, where we live now, and that it wasn't a, it wasn't an easy transition. No, and... You know, I'm going to tell a story that I love, and I think you'll appreciate it because I know when we talked, you have uh, you did your interdisciplinary story, studies in dance and media, was it? Uh, performance and digital oh, media. Yes, yeah, right. Let me try that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do have a master's degree. I can speak. <laughs> performance in digital media. So um, what most people don't know is that modern dance is a direct appropriation of uh, indigenous powwow dances and um, that when America was trying to and this I'm I know what happened in the states but uh, I'm not too sure about the history in Canada but I did study this as part of my my research that it did happen in the states where the all of the edicts and the decrees around cleansing the native people and and um, forcing them to assimilate to, uh, you know, quote-unquote American culture at the time, was around dancing. So they made it, um, they made it like, punishable by death if they in, natives were found dancing that they were to be shot on sight. And these were part of, it was part of their system. The, what do you call it? The, I guess, oh, yes, no, it, absolutely. But the... Uh, the officials at the time had identified immediately that these dances were central to their way of life, to their culture, to their understanding of themselves, their bodies, and their relationship to the earth. And so by stamping them out, they believed that that was their ticket to solving the Indian problem, as they called it. And clearly, that didn't work. And in fact, the um, Native populations they didn't they completely ignored them and over time especially as we reach closer to the turn of the century uh there was a big sort of um you know what you call like a revival or renewed interest in uh indigenous culture and unfortunately it was largely appropriated into you know onto the stage and whatnot but martha graham and i think it was edward limon not a hundred percent sure, but um, it was Martha Graham and one other pioneer of modern dance actually would go to these powwow dances on a Saturday, and by Monday they were teaching exactly what they saw in the studios. And so the Martha Graham technique is here because of because of indigenous dances, and it was all the like expressive kind of expansion and um, contraction and movement that was so vital compared to what was so restrictive and what had been seen in ballet and, and such before. So it's a language. Completely. It's a universal mm-hmm. language. One hundred percent. They did the same thing in Hawaii mm. with the native dancers in Hawaii, the both male and the female there, they crushed that in an effort to out they outlawed actually hula dancing because they thought it was from a Christian perspective, they thought it was yes. 
lewd and mm-hmm. lascivious behavior and so forth, which is really mis- you know unfortunate. Um, as I we talked about again earlier when our conversation previous to this, I uh, grew up around that in Colorado, watching Native American dance and the different tribes that came in, the different people that came in, and each one of them, how their dance was unique, but still carried the same message. It was really, really awesome, actually. That's special. What got you interested in this? In my work currently? Gosh. Well, it was personal experience, really. And there were two kind of courses of events that landed me here, I suppose you could say. I had been, I've been doing, you know, movement somatics and teaching movement education for years. And I was in my like first year of doing my, my master's work. And uh, so I'll describe the two, the two courses events. The first one um, involved my research and that was um, all around embryonic developmental movement patterns and teaching people the various different stages we go through, sort of reenacting them, if you like, um, on the other side of the womb. And there had been like a lot of people who've done wonderful works of, of growth and healing through, through this developmental movement work. And I was just curious to see what could happen, you know, if I worked with people who had trauma. And I was very, you know, I didn't have any plan going into it. Um, it was very much sort of a phenomenological, let's see what's available here kind of thing. And the first woman I worked with, uh, she had, so first I want to say that, so I, I took these patterns, but I created an entire protocol um, around them. So it was sort of, uh, these people had 12 weeks of a different type of lifestyle, you could say. And the first woman she had been, she'd had a child five years previous to us working together um, and she had been branded infertile ever after by the, you know, Western medical, uh, doctors and they tried everything with her, you know, multiple rounds of IVF. She'd been on all of the, um, like you call it acupuncture type, um, approaches. And so when she got to me, she was just at her wits end and the doctors were saying, let's just do more IVF and throw the kitchen sink at you. And the thing was, she had no, like she, like her, her hormone levels were fine. She was able to, she had had a couple of miscarriages, but she couldn't um, consistently carry a child. And within six weeks of us working together, she was pregnant. She carried the, the baby all the way through, has a healthy three or four year old now. And it was simply by doing this applied parasympathetic nervous system work and teaching people to like continually just keep coming back to your parasympathetic ground. I didn't realize that that's what the protocol was doing at the time, but that's what I had done. It was just kind of an intuitive. This is what these folks need. I also worked with a woman who had eating disorders, um, a woman with anxiety and a gent with um, depression and in all cases, you know, within 12 weeks, they were all saying, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be like. This is what life is supposed to feel like. And so I had that experience and almost alongside of it, but separate, I was going through my own uh, journey. I just ended a five-year-long abusive relationship and was recovering from a serious head injury. And at that point, I had probably been, you know, working on myself in a really dedicated capacity for 20 years. You know, I've tried everything. I, at this point was, you know, professional in a lot of modalities and, um, had a, you know, essentially, like I said, pretty much tried everything and this pleasure work and really understanding the various nuances of my own sexuality and the wounds of my sexuality was really the only it was sort of the last stand. It was the kind. It was the place that I could no longer afford to avoid and turn away from. And so, I jumped in, and it all went horribly wrong. <laughs> it was not the experience that I had guided all these these people through. Instead, I was re-traumatized. I was triggered. I I went into probably about almost two years solid of chronic dysregulation that I couldn't pull myself out of. And it's because a lot of this work does not 
account for the complexities of our nervous systems when it comes to the way our sexuality and our our relationship to pleasure and again not just sexual pleasure all pleasure is is wired because again like as you said in my in my intro that um i really do see in all of my clients and in when i look at the world in general that uh our relationship to pleasure is a direct reflection of our relationship to self-worth and that the capacities are correlative as well. So it is more of a holistic approach. Completely. It's, and it's entirely self-directed, which is what is really vital, I think to, to the work because when, and you don't have to have had any big, serious, big T trauma in your life to feel this way. We're disenfranchised by virtue of, you know, the hierarchical systems we live in, by virtue of, you know, the oppressive uh, society that so many people are subject to. So um, it's so important to folks at whatever point in their process they're in that they're supported to cultivate their own agency as opposed to, the doctor or the person in the position of power telling them what to do and how to heal themselves. Um, you know, activating that our own instinctive, our body's intuitive and inborn ability to heal and recover ourselves is, uh, oh, it's everything. Yeah, it, as I've said in some of my other programs and my other episodes, mind, body, and soul are key mm-hmm. to, you can overcome anything. I was supposed to be in a wheelchair, as most of my listeners know. Um, I was diagnosed by five doctors that I would be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, and uh, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So the the aspect that we have the ability to heal ourselves, I 100% believe in, and I, I am with you in that I, I'm not a professional in regard to counseling anybody in regard to that, but I come from a personal perspective in accomplishing it myself, because I was supposed to not walk, and I... I know, yeah. As you can it's see, amazing. I'm not in a wheelchair, so I walk two, three oh miles gosh, a day. It has a lot to do with mind, body, soul, and uh, so I, I, I can um, I understand that. So your your process that um, that you um, your modality that you kind of put onto people it unites the physical, emotional, and sexual as well as spiritual parts mm-hmm. of of the person. Correct. And can you tell me a little bit sure. more about that? So, uh-huh. so, um, so I guess, so those two events that I described um, allowed me to develop an approach uh, that allows people to really meet themselves where they are. And I think that's the most important the most important thing that wherever, because we're all in a different place in life and someone might be, you know, super emotionally intelligent, but have never looked at their sexuality in their life. Someone might be very sexually literate and not have um, the same level of emotional intelligence. So, um, and that's my greatest critique of a lot of these systems is that it's a one size fits all. And, you know, none of us are the same size in any way or capacity, right? We're all in different, different paths growing at different rates. So what I realized, and so what I will say, after I had my big kind of um, negative experience going the more conventional or the more known route through um, my own investigation, exploration of my, my relationship to pleasure, uh, I used my own protocol on myself. And um, what I've come to understand and what my, my clients also report is that this state of parasympathetic ground is where we are most connected to our spiritual selves, to the essence of who we are, whether you want, however you want to define that, um, but to where we are most united in, you know, awareness physiology and in in essence and spirit and in this place of parasympathetic ground it's not possible to have negative self-beliefs because the tissue state of every single organ fluid cell bone and membrane is i'm safe i'm safe i'm safe all is well 
I am loved. That's, you, ca- you can't have any other um, thought forms happening because all of the tissues of the body are working toward in a different mode, if you like. Whereas in fight flight, the belief state of all of our tissues is I'm going to die. Um, I'm not loved. Uh, there's a threat. You know, there's something wrong with me. Something's after me. I'm done for. All of these negative beliefs, um, which are, are which are real when there's an actual, you know, bear running after us <laughs> or someone's food. So, um, you know, it's it's wonderful that we have all these evolutionary um, sort of hacks baked into who we are, baked into our bodies to help us survive. But untangling what they mean for living in a in a modern world where um, we're also having to negotiate years of generational trauma that we're we are landed with when we're born is complex so um a lot of all of my work really kind of makes room for all of those complexities and for people to again like explore them in in their own time in their own way and with this parasympathetic ground that's why i love it so much because it people come to what they need when their bodies are ready to do that work. So if someone's not ready to engage with themselves spiritually because of a negative experience they had growing up in the church or whatever, they'll come to that once they've built the, the safety and the foundation for themselves to be able to, to meet that part of themselves that went through that difficult time, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Is that, is that something along the lines of the neurooptimal? Neurooptimal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another interesting. So neurooptimal is actually a neurofeedback system. I wish I'd had it set up. I could have shown it to you. Um, uh, so it is a uh, what's called a brain training device. It uses EEG sensors on the skull to read um, neural impulses and. In a, I suppose the most simplified way of, of thinking about it, it, uh, it acts as a mirror. So as the system is reading all of these impulses which are flying by, and it's reading them at a rate of about 300 per second, it's looking for any impulses that might be uh, more intense than what is ideal or optimal, um, longer, stronger, all of these kind of intensities that would indicate that a pathway is either outmoded, unnecessary, or um, or you know causing undue stress. And so this system acts it's acting as a mirror. It literally reflects back those moments of intensity to the brain through auditory clicks. So we're listening to we have these. Um, EEG sensors on the scalp and earbuds in the ear and every time there's just like little tiny clicks that's a signal to the brain that okay there's something you might want to look at and maybe not run anymore and so over time it's it really is like a it completely repatterns the brain and is is quite um, transformative for people with any is that something is that something you use in? It is, your- yeah. So okay. my preference, like I, my, I kind of have a when I'm working locally with people, I uh, use both of these modalities. So the I kind of think of it as a conscious and a subconscious um, practice. So the neurooptimal really looks after all the subconscious stuff that you know could be things like you know beliefs around pencils from when we were kids and you know we had a really negative experience sharpening our pencils in grade two you know like just all of these little things and so neurooptimal is really great at kind of defragging our uh our brains and through the so my my coaching one-on-one work works more um consciously with what's actually in awareness and between the two of them i find that they're able to help people move through content very quickly and in a way that's like I don't want to say it's completely effortless but it doesn't feel as activating or strenuous as some one-on-one talk therapies can um and re-traumatizing because sometimes when we're going through those modes you know we don't know that we're hitting the red zone until we're actually there 
So Neuroptimal really supports people to, uh, to build up more of that foundation, which is exactly what I do in my, in my one-on-one clients. And for people that I see through distance, there are places you can rent them yourself and they'll deliver them to your house. So you can still avail of that technology if that's something that folks want. That's probably interesting. Is that part of your, your, what do you call pleasure work? Uh, Neuroptimal or the overall? Overall. How how does pleasure Mm -hmm. work fall into So the Neuroptimal is really, it's like a, it's a remarkable, you know, self-healing tool. And I kind of, it's kind of like something that I just keep on the back burners. It's always, always going. So when I'm talking about, yes, it will be supportive to pleasure work if people want to do it, um, but it's not dealing directly with their relationship to pleasure. So when I'm doing pleasure work with folks, it's, um, I, I usually start in non-sexual pleasure, knowing that, you know, when you're dealing with pleasure, the sexual component is always there. Right. Uh, and so most of the folks who come to see me by the time they see me, they might be, um, they might be feeling really shut down sexually with themselves or with their partner. They may have had a history. In fact, most do have a history of some form of turbulent background. And so a lot of what I do in the beginning, especially is just opening people's senses through these embodiment exercises and building a sense of safety in the senses because the you can't experience pleasure if you have dulled senses right the extent to which we can experience pleasure is limited by by our sense doors so that's always where I start and it's usually it's a very safe and accessible place for folks it's a really nice way of building um, trust within themselves and some compassion as well, and also feeling a sense of accomplishment. So um, that's that's a really big part of what I do, is just building an understanding and an experience of feeling pleasure in day-to-day life. And Can you give me some examples, maybe, to help us understand what kind of daily sure, life like, pleasures might um, be? Holding a warm cup of coffee against your chest on a cold day, or, you know, bundling up in a uh, in a sweater when fall comes around. Um, the pleasure of uh, sleeping in when you don't have an alarm going off. You know, just all of these, like taking moments to actually drink in the delight of, of life because when we're chronically activated, uh, oh, let me back up one more thing. So the pleasure, you know how I was talking about the two modes of the nervous system of safety and non-safety. It's impossible to be engaged in a pleasurable experience and be activated at the same time. So by virtue of the fact of doing pleasure work, we're doing nervous system dysregulation work or working to bring regulation to the nervous system. So it's kind of like a, I'm all about as many birds with one stone as possible. (laughs) Yeah, like, well, you know, life's hard. It's hard enough. And I, by the time people, I mean, all of us, not just by the time people get to me, but I think people have suffered enough and I don't see the point in dragging out um, people's uh, people's progress. Well, I, yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, we'll go into a little bit more of that in a little more in depth, but I, um, I think in our previous conversation, yes. I told you I meditate. And meditation has helped me immensely. And it's helped me immensely because it has allowed me to take the distractions away because I, over my time period, I was injured in the line of duty. I've been through five surgeries uh, and an immense amount of work that had to be done to get me to where I am at the moment. So in doing that, I use meditation and they teach you to eliminate Mm -hmm. the distractions and to take away from, um, be grateful for the little steps and be grateful for the little, Mm -hmm. the old cliche. Be thankful and grateful for the little things because the little things mean a lot. So kind yeah, of like that, right? And the uh, well, yes, hundred percent. The I take it a little step further in in um, when we so when you experience that feeling of of enjoyment when you hold a a coffee cup or a cup of tea close to your chest early in the morning, I guide people to really go inside and track every single. Um, embodied sensation or felt sense that proves to you, that tells you that that's what pleasure means. So we're creating this kind of map of, 
how our bodies define pleasure. And so that over time, you don't need the coffee cup or, you know, the sleep in or the cuddle with your dog that you can actually just trigger it on command wherever you are when you're in a you know, difficult meeting with a client or um, in stuck in traffic. There are ways of working from the body up instead of working from external environment in, if that makes sense. Kind of rewire your Mm -hmm. thought patterns. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. So you work on the physical, emotional, sexual, and spiritual part of of self while you stay rooted in a modern Mm -hmm. evidence-based system, right? Sure. So my most of my background is through uh, movement-based somatics, and somatics is a field of research and study that kind of emerged in the '60s and has um, really been the it's what's pioneered what we're now seeing now in, in terms of what's called body-centered psychotherapy. Um, somatic experiencing was born out of movement-based somatics uh, in the 60s. And so it's um, the system that I study. So instead of just taking the concept and applying it, I've actually gone to to the effort, and it's no effort at all because it's actually really deeply fascinating work. Uh, of really understanding the whole system, so that's what my that's what my master's in is in is in embodiment philosophy and somatics, and so uh, between that and the other evidence based system would be you know neurooptimal um, neurofeedback's been been proven time and time again to be super effective at healing trauma or I'm careful about use the use of the word healing because we'll have different perceptions around what that means but in terms of being able to provide um uh measured relief uh yeah and then the other one is uh what's called trauma-informed approaches to practice and uh those are so what i talked about how important self-directed work is for me and it's been proven that in cases where they've you know have taken people who've had 20 years of PTSD, no relief, no medication, no nothing will work on them. Even things like EMDR um, and CBT, which are known to be very um, popular in treating PTSD and CPTSD. EMDR is is eye movement rapid or, oh, I'm going to miss it now. It's, so it's a system of, I don't practice it, I've tried it, and it, it didn't work for me, so it's not something that, uh, that I spend a lot of time with myself, but it's a, a practice within uh, trauma treatment that involves, um, uh, so you'll be listening to, like, beeps, essentially, in, in, through a, what do you call it, like your earphones, and they kind of go right and left and right and left. And in some systems, you might be tapping the right and left side of your body. And the idea is just to uh, bring a present moment body experience to the you know, flashbacks or, or traumatic memories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I, I just wanted to help oh, people understand yes. what that was. I wish I remembered the actual acronym. Maybe you can put that in the show notes. <laughs> um, I, I have the technology. Uh, I think I can do that. Uh, I have a, I have a, uh, like I mentioned, I have a serious brain injury. So my memory is sometimes not always, not always there with things like that. So um, what was I talking about before we started talking about EMDR? Oh, right. Evidence-based. And so I was talking about, um, how important self-directed practices are. And so they found with these folks who had, you know, like I said, been 20 years without any real shifting of their, um, their symptoms that using self-directed movement protocols, uh, within 20 weeks created like shifts that they had, had never experienced. You know, these are people who have very serious sexual traumas, almost all of them. And they, you know, their relationships started improving. They started having sex with their partners again. And, you know, all just by giving people uh, an outlet for building up their own agency, which is something I talked about earlier on in our conversation. So um, that's, that's really where I take most of my, most of my, my practice direction from, because those things work. <laughs> 
Well, I, I, it's very interesting, actually. I, I, um, I think that your opportunity to help people in that regard is an outstanding opportunity to allow people to grow within themselves. I think um, you believe that the capacity for pleasure is directly proportional mm-hmm. to our self-worth, which I think is very important as well. I, yeah. like, I think that uh, in, at least in, in my old career, um, I had to be very empathetic and understanding in many situations. And I was part of a domestic violence task force uh, for a number of years. And it was a multi-agency task force. So we worked not only in the city, but within the county and everything around it. And self-worth, um, unfortunately, within that arena is uh, a very strong mm-hmm. negative aspect is promoted within that. And so I, I like this. They believe the capacity for pleasure direct related to proportional to our self-worth because you have to believe in yourself and you have to feel that you are more important than somebody else makes you feel. And that I, I think, Absolutely. can we talk about that just a little bit? So um, this is where uh, I get a little, um, I don't want to say I'm being my bonnet, but I can sometimes, I sometimes get frustrated when, you know, people only look at thought work and mindset to try and alleviate things like um, abusive relationships and chronic um, abusive relationships with family uh, because our, the same way that we have a tissue or belief state for I'm safe, we have a belief state for pleasure and it's created by every single experience we have as we're growing up. So we have the first experience, the first experience that writes that definition in our bodies of what good feels like is the moment after birth, after we come screaming out of the womb and it's horribly painful. Someone, you know, if you were born in the seventies or before hangs you upside down, smacks you on the bottom. (laughs) That's happened to me. And, uh, And then finally, you're returned to a warm body whose voice you recognize, who smells really nice and comforting and is just telling you she loves you. And and even if you weren't born to your actual mother, there's someone to hold you. There was a doctor or a nurse or someone to tell your body you're safe. You're safe. You're not dying. Everything's going to be okay. And so then this... Uh, over the course of our lives, we have more of these experiences that fill in our body's definition of what pleasure is. And if we don't, or what do I, how do I want to say this? Our definitions of pleasure can be very easily corrupted by those experiences. And if our experience, my experience growing up as a child is telling me that um, relationship means being hurt, then when I grow up as an adult, that's what I'm going to think of myself in terms of what I, what I deserve. Because, you know, it's really easy to get into deserving and feeling bad for ourselves for feeling like we don't deserve much, but really this is like, and this is what I try to get across to people. It's not your fault. It's your nervous system that has decided that these are what your definitions of your life are. And so just the same way that our nervous system learned what all of these definitions are. Cause the nervous system doesn't care. It doesn't, all its job is to do is to identify, categorize and remember. It's not passing judgment. It's just taking the information in and identify categorizing and remembering it. And so the same way that all of those negative or difficult experiences created Uh, these corrupted definitions around pleasure and deserving for us, we can reverse them simply by feeding in new information. And I'm going to take this one step further because uh, all of that correlates to our window of tolerance for pleasure. So if we haven't experienced healthy love or a lot of financial or career success or, um, nourishing relationships in life generally, then we're going to have a really short, uh, small window of tolerance for those things when we actually receive them. And we're going to sabotage ourselves because not just because we don't think we deserve them, but because our nervous systems don't know how to progress or pro, uh, process them. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting perspective. It makes a lot of sense. 
It really does. So do you think that the people who find their way to this work have struggled in some form or another with overcoming that? I mean, most of the people who, so right now I'm, I've never actually worked with a man yet. And I don't think that, I mean, I'm open, my doors are always open to any, everybody. I think that the only reason that is, is because men have sort of a harder or a higher hurdle to get over in terms of their vulnerability and what their perceptions are around what it means to their masculinity that they are having trouble understanding their sexuality, right? So I do, I see women um, who all of them have some form of difficult upbringing in their history. So whether it's alcoholism or um, an emotionally abusive parent or um, physical or sexual abuse. And um, so, yes, uh, there in every single case, there is a corrupted definition around pleasure and what good feels like, you know, in air quotes. Do you think that affects all aspects mm-hmm. of that person's life, like a work career, or personal life? Yep, because if you don't know everything. what good feels like to yourself, it's impossible for you to identify it in something else or choose it for yourself. Well, you kind of help people um, mm-hmm. take the helm, right? And and allow them to take back their life, so to speak, and yeah. kind of move it Completely. forward. So can you sure. tell me a little bit about how so, you um like I said, I always start with uh, with sensory work, and we do a lot of like you know there are, there are journal prompts, and what I'll have I kind of have a series of two or three prompts, and I get them to go back every month and and go a little bit deeper because, like I said earlier, I really I like to take the gentle approach. I like to go slow. So um, in every case, I really encourage people not to go for the heaviest weight in the stack. <laughs> and this is where I think a lot of other systems don't have the level of awareness. And so they'll say, yeah, go after your most traumatic moment and dive deep. And it's just like you're opening up the deepest and most, you know, most painful wound instead of saying, okay, well, let's look at something that's like really ineffectual, like the time when you were seven and someone made fun of you at the pencil sharpener. And that gave you your, you know, your thing about pencils, just to bring that example back. So, um, you know, we look at the really innocuous stuff first to build um, the stability and the, the self-trust and just the resources. Because as we look at the little things, you always see, you know, the, the micro and the macro. So wherever, if someone's having, say, um, a little bit of tune out in a minor difficulty, odds are we're going to see it in the bigger the bigger issue. So we're dealing with things like uh, dissociation and how to notice, okay, I had like a little bit of dissociation there. How do I get out of it? So that I'm not really like guiding people down a road where they're, they're going to fall into a like complete, you know, tune out for six hours and wake up and be like, what just happened, which happens to, to folks when they do do this work, because it's just, it can be too much. Mm-hmm. If I can ask you this, how does that differ from something like uh, hypnotherapy? Um, I haven't done hypnotherapy myself. Um, how I differ is that everything that I do is, um, well, for starters, hypnotherapy isn't self-directed. It's someone else guiding people. Whereas in what I'm doing, so I can give you an example. I'd say, let's talk about the pleasure of a vision. And for the next week, I want you to every day, take stock of what visual pleasure means to you. Where do you notice visual pleasure? Are there certain times of day that you're more available to visual pleasure? Are there things that happen in your life? Is it like at work, are you not available to visual pleasure at all? So we're kind of going through and it's their own um, read of their own life. It's completely experiential. So it's directly applicable and they're constantly having these, um, you know, moments of insight as they practice because they're, you know, learning how to be more awake and more present to their own lived experience. Do you think that the, in, in working that way and from that direction, when you get able to open up about all the different pleasures of life, whether it be a visual or audible, you know, as we talked earlier, my master's is in mm-hmm. you know, did, uh, performance and digital media, 
we used my my capstone and was in regard to utilizing um, music and dance and drama and healing. Wonderful. In the aspects of the the audible portion of it as well, and the the research that I had done was fascinating with how mm. World War II vets, for example, were were in a veteran's home and they couldn't get them to calm down. They couldn't. Everybody, just in a nutshell, it's a long story, so I'm going to break it down just short. They couldn't get everybody to calm down and relax, and everybody was constantly in an upheaval. Mm-hmm. Every little noise they heard was an upheaval. But when the lady decided to turn on the record player, and she put a song that everybody really liked, everybody calmed down, and everybody relaxed, and everybody started thinking of other things other than, because back then they didn't know what PTSD was from the war. They only knew that it was shell some, shock. some yeah. traumatic incident mm-hmm. from the war, but shell shock, yeah. And how well it worked in order to soothe the beast, so to speak. So so in regard to that, do you think that allowing all those other pleasures to open themselves up and to be able to experience them help somebody to resolve or to manage 100%. or to move forward in their sexual um, life? You know, what you exactly what you described is showing people shifting from being in fight flight to people shifting to being in the parasympathetic nervous system. Pleasure and parasympathetic drive uh, happen at this, like you can't separate the two of them. So sorry, I got distracted now your question. (laughs) Um, No, 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 it's okay. I was just so, I love that story (laughs) because we, I, I learned about it when I was doing my trauma informed um, training. We learned a lot about uh, research that they'd done on, on, Fats. Um, so I think you had asked me uh, about this work and how it supports people to move forward in their sexual life. So yes. So what we're really doing in in my work is I'm teaching people's bodies that it's safe to be in their senses and that it's safe to inhabit their bodies instead of running away from sensory experience. And so that completely affects how they embody themselves or inhabit themselves as sexual beings as well, because um, our sexuality is, is in avoidably, unavoidably sensory based. You know, you have touch, smell, movement, it's all there. And if we can't inhabit our senses safely, then there's no way that we feel safe exploring ourselves as sexual creatures. Uh, so it really helps to build a sense of safety and autonomy, which is really key for many of many of the people that I that I see. By expanding our capacity for pleasure, what can we discover? So many things. So I want to bring this around to uh, talk a little bit about what we're noticing in 2020 and uh, what happens when we're chronically activated. So by expanding your uh, capacity for pleasure. There's a few things. So for one, like I said, if we can't experience, if we don't know what, what pleasure feels like, or if we're running on um, corrupted definitions of pleasure, then we're always going to choose corrupted, um, pardon me, we're going to choose things for our life, whether it be friends, people, jobs, what have you, that match those definitions of what good feels like. So by expanding our definitions of pleasure and by uh, correcting some of the misinformation, we automatically start choosing better things for ourselves. We can't help it. It's impossible because what the wonderful thing about our nervous systems is that um, they're designed to uh, avoid pain. So as soon as we start living in inhabiting our bodies uh, in a state of comfort, all the time, we're in as much of the time as possible, we immediately start to be able to identify things as being, oh, no, that's going to give me pain. Like that person who, you know, is clearly not going to be the right man for me to date or, you know, is that guy's super unavailable. You can see these things. I relate to dating because this is where a lot of people uh, really struggle in choosing the wrong partners. And um, so we're able to identify these things much clearly much more clearly and it's much more obvious to us. The same thing with uh, work. We become a lot more clear in our, in our decision-making simply because we've established this um, embodied state of, of pleasure and safety and 
it's not even in our own decision. It's our nervous systems that are saying, no, we don't want to change this because it feels good. <laughs> mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. What happens when our body shuts down? And our, yeah, our so um, this is complex. There's so many things to talk about here. We can talk about freeze, freeze activation, which um, can look like total dissociation and immobility, or it can look like lethargy or just feeling like you don't have your words, you know, freeze is something that affects people in the workplace so much. And in like tiny little baby increments, you know, you have a boss who might be a little bit toxic and says the wrong thing. And anytime we feel lost for words, freezes is, uh, is often happening in our bodies and our nervous systems. It's a response. So, um, so in shutdown, yeah, we look like, um, either lashing out or tuning out. And so um, our senses become more dulled because our bodies have determined that being in our senses is going to be uncomfortable because life is uncomfortable. It's just what we're seeing in 2020. We have a lot of people, um, there's a lot more anxiety, a lot more depression. And it's because our world has been proven to ourselves, sorry, that's my dog, um, uh, is, you know, every day we, whether we go outside or turn on the TV, there's proof of the fact that uh, the world isn't safe. And so we shut down in order to avoid feeling anything that would, um, would cause us more pain. Mm. That makes sense. So your embodiment in pleasure coaching can help bring mm -hmm. people yeah. and out of that, correct? Again, like, like I, I'm all Me about too. working slowly, um, and most people who do this kind of work are. Uh, but in the pleasure work field, um, you know, I think people have to be, people have to be careful uh, because it can be, it can be tricky. It's, re it's really rife for, for re-traumatization is, is sort of the little warning I'll give for that. Um, and uh by working slowly to, again, like just establishing safety in just our sensory awareness, um, that builds up um, the foundation for, for more time in our parasympathetic nervous system. So again, the more time we spend in our parasympathetic nervous system, the more time we're telling our bodies, our organs, our tissues, uh, that everything is safe, even though we look outside and the world is burning. <laughs> and the more capable we are, pardon me, the more time we spend and the more um, we encourage ourselves to, to be in parasympathetic ground, the more capable we are with dealing with the fact that the world is burning. You know, not that it actually is, but we've, we've, we've not been in the best place in the last year. So No, we have not. Hopefully that will change very soon. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, indeed. I'm feeling that too. We can move, move forward in a very positive way. Yeah, we need if somebody's interested in finding you and working with you, where can we find you? Yes. So uh, my my website, nishafair.com. I'm also on Instagram at nishafair. Uh, I am actually putting on my new, uh, my first course. It's called Come to Your Senses. And it starts January 15th. And uh, that will be online, but moderated and, and uh, attended by me live. And on uh, Cyber Monday, I'm actually doing a two-for-one sale. So folks can can get a buddy or a partner and spend the first two months of pandemic winter just engaged in your own pleasure, learning about dysregulation. Doesn't matter what's happening outside. You're going to be fine. So uh, that's... Pandemic <laughs> that winter. sounds good. Yeah. Well, up here in Canada, like that's sort of what we're all, you know, patting like down the hatches a, for. Good name for a book, The Pandemic, pandemic Winter. winter. Yeah. Page one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was a cold day. Yeah, indeed. <gasps> uh, well, I'll have I'll have some uh, links to Thank that in the show phone. notes so that everybody knows how to get a hold of you and how to find your courses. I think that that would be a benefit to many people out there and that, that they need further exploration. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure meeting you. You too. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate you coming on board and sharing with us um, your journeys and you. uh, what you can provide for other people. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. 
That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.